Okay, we are ready to go into uh, the book of Esther. <clears throat> We're just going through the first four chapters today and um, pulling out um, our observations from those first four chapters. And I'm going to start with Elizabeth on your takeaway um, from the first, basically the first half of Esther. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so... In the first half of Esther, there's a lot of things that kind of go on to set up the second half of the book and kind of the the main event, the climax of it, if you will. And what kind of struck me was that for the first little bit, Esther doesn't really do much. Like, after Vashti is deposed, they're calling all the young women, and she just kind of ends up there, and we never really tell if she willingly went or she just kind of had to go because everyone was being forced to go. <clears throat> and then... We don't really see um, her do a ton until literally the end of four, where it's Mordecai pushing her to be like, hey, this might be the reason that you're here. So because we can see some sort of character growth in that, where she grows from being um, more of this passive figure to someone who eventually saves her people, which I think is... A really cool way to look at it. Okay. Good. All right. Uh, Shelly. Shelly. Sherry. <laughs> okay. So, um, uh, a couple of things. <clears throat> um, I've always no. been told that uh, whenever, we, whenever I've studied this, that, of course, we know that there's no mention of God in this book or prayer. <clears throat> However, um, the presence of God in every page of this book is testament to the fact that it's really about God. Um, <clears throat> but I've never, I've never understood like uh, everybody that, it, that has talked about it prior to this has always said, "Well, there's no mention of God that, in this book," um, but there are reasons for that. But nobody's ever said like. Okay, what are those reasons? Um, <clears throat> so, what I've gotten out of it in reading and studying about it and studying about the structure of it is that Esther and Mordecai are obviously not the heroes of this book. The hero in this book is God. And it's... it's in the very um, ironic nature of the entire book, like um, things that happen don't happen. Like you were mentioning, well, do, how do we know like, if Esther went because she wanted to, if she was forced to go? Um, the reason that's not mentioned, uh, and also about uh, Vashti, we don't, you know, there's there's all kinds of different theories about whether whether she was um, justified in her disobedience, whether she or not, um, whether she was just being a disobedient wife, or whether she you know had a just reason for not. And the reason that we're not told that is it doesn't matter because that's not the point. And the reason that we're not told uh, the reason that we're told of things that happened. Um, that weren't really anybody's doing uh, is that that that's God working because um, 
Esther just happened to be at the right place at the right time. Mordecai just happened to be at the right place at the right time and hear about this plot to, to, um, to kill the king. Haman just happened to be in the court when the king said, hey, go and see who's in the court. I want to talk to whoever it is. Um, so it, 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 it's a series of what would normally look like a bunch of coincidences, mm -hmm. but they're not right. because God. And God is the hero in this book. Um, and so the structure of it and the telling of the story makes it obvious that this is a God thing. Mm -hmm. um, and so um, that's why it like sort of cleverly doesn't mention a lot of times um, a literary um, <clears throat> technique is to make something obvious without actually saying it. Right. And so I think that's the case here. Yeah. Um, Fasting is mentioned, but not prayer. Well, it's obvious that they prayed. Mm -hmm. I mean, they didn't just go without eating for three days just for right. You know. So anyway, so that's my um, so that's my hot take on it. So I similar <clears throat> to both of the things mentioned, uh, and really more overlapping, Sherry, with with some of those thoughts that you were mentioning is I deeply appreciate how this story, for lack of a better term, it accentuates the, I guess, smallness of man um, and what God is about in his working things about. And, and it is interesting. I mean, I think all throughout scriptures, in, in all the books, we can see that even though we've got heroes of faith and, and those types of things, I think the point is always don't be so impressed though with any person, but be impressed with what God is doing through that person because we have we have the whole gamut from the the you know insignificant harlot to the great king and everybody in between. It's this to me is one of the epitome stories of God is going to do through you wonderful things if you are willing, a willing participant. And Esther is such a beautiful example of that, of someone, like you were talking about the character growth, where she is basically a commoner, but God raises her up for his purpose, not for us to look at Esther, but to look through her to see... <clears throat> The workings of God and Mordecai as well, and and to gain strength from that, you know, thinking about the the verse she quoted about you know for such a time as this, I mean, how many times do we go back to that and for ourselves and say, who knows, but that maybe we are here for such a time as this, and it emboldens us to do what we know we ought to do for the sake of God's glory, not for our own. So. Um, like Esther did, you know, for the sake of the people. So anyway, um, I'm just, I, I greatly appreciate that message of bloom where you're planted. And I know it's, that's very cliche, but I think this is a beautiful, um, a beautiful picture of that, you know, and, and how, you know how we do when we see this um, face to face and examples of people we know that you, it just hits closer to home and get your heart when you see somebody 
living that out. And I think Esther does a beautiful job of that, of, you know, this is not something comfortable for her. It's not an easy thing, but because she's allowing God to do great things. Um, anyway, she's able to be a part of that. So it's pretty amazing. Okay, all right, we'll jump in um, on chapter one and read through that. I'll go ahead and take the first chapter. Now, it took place in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days, as King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne, which was at the citadel in Susa, in the third year of his reign, he gave a banquet for all his princes and attendants, the army officers of Persia and Media, the nobles and the princes of his provinces being in his presence. And he displayed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of his great majesty for many days, 180 days. <clears throat> when these days were completed, the king gave a banquet lasting seven days for all the people who were present at the citadel in Susa from the greatest to the least in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were hangings of fine white and violet linen held by cords of fine purple linen on silver rings and marble columns and couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels of various kinds and the royal wine was plentiful according to the king's bounty. The drinking was done according to the law. There was no compulsion, for so the king had given orders to each official of his household that he should do according to the desires of each person. Queen Vashti also gave a banquet for the women in the place which belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, Abagtha, Zethar, and carcass, the seven eunuchs who were served in the presence, of, who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to display her beauty to the people and the princes, for she was beautiful. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Then the king became very angry, and his wrath burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who understood the times, for it was the custom of the king, so to speak, before all who knew law and justice and were close to him, Karshina, Shethar, Admetha, Tarshish, Maris, Marsena, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who had access to the king's presence and sat in the first place in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she did not obey the, king, the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? In the presence of the king and the princes, Mamukin said Queen Vashti was wronged not only, has wronged not only the king, but also all the princes and all the people, peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's conduct will become known to all the women, saying, causing them to look with contempt on their husbands by saying, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought into his presence, but she did not come. This day, the ladies of Persia and Media, who have heard of the queen's conduct, will speak in the same way to all the king's princes, and there will be plenty of contempt and anger. 
If it pleases the king, let a royal edict be issued by him, and let it be written in the laws of Persia and Media, so that it cannot be repealed, that Vashti may no longer come into the presence of King Ahasuerus, and let the king give her royal position to another who is more worthy than she. When the king's edict, which he will make, is heard throughout all his, all his kingdom, great as it is, then all women will give honor to their husbands, great and small. This word pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mamukin promised. So he sent letters to all the king's provinces, to each province according to its script, and to every uh, people according to their language, that every man should be the master in his own house, and the one who speaks in the language of his own people. And to quote my friend Elizabeth, spicy. <laughs> All right. So, Sherry, you can start us off. Okay. So, I think um, uh, just briefly, so to talk about structure, um, just so we can get to the point of this book, um, is that it's a, uh, it, it, there's a linear structure, but there's also a chiastic structure starting with chapter 1 and ending in chapter 10, uh, 13-part, uh, 6, and then the, the turning point is, number, is unit number 7, and then, and then uh, throughout the rest of the book, then it, it comes back down the other direction. <clears throat> also, there are, uh, and this is why I told you earlier, I'm like geeking out over this book, um, because then there's also... Uh, the two halves of the story uh, which culminate in Haman's fortunes turning so that's the turning point of the of the book uh, Haman is increasing in power he's 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 making decrees and doing things that makes it look like okay the Jews are doomed and then the turning point uh, is where his fortunes turn in chapter 6 and then it quickly kind of goes back the other direction. Um, uh, and then, um, but then you have within that, within that structure, you have the first half, which is a chiasm in itself, and the second half, which is a chiasm in itself. So you have like um, a bunch of, you have, uh, we have, the, you have the symmetrical or chiastic structures sort of overlapping. And chapter six um, is, the turning point in the in the entire book, but it also forms the end of the first chiasm and the beginning of the next. So it sort of makes it, uh, sort of has a double duty there. Um, so we start out with a king's feast, and at the end of the book, we're talking about the feast of Purim. And so uh, that makes that makes me think that this book is mostly talking about why we celebrate the Feast of Purim. Um, and it's also interesting that there's, it starts out with a feast, ends with a feast, and in the middle there's a bunch of feasts. Mm -hmm. Like it's about a lot of banquets. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you, you have Esther giving two banquets, you have this, this banquet, there was, there's a, there was a banquet given when Esther was crowned queen, um, and, then, and, then, uh, and then at the end of the book you have the, the Feast of Purim. So, um, <clears throat> Uh, we start out at the beginning of this where there's a feast, a great feast, and then uh, and letters are sent throughout the um, 
and then at the end, we have the great feast, and then after Vashti's refusal to obey the king, then you have letters sent throughout the province, and at the end, you're going to have letters sent throughout the province saying, okay, now this is a feast for the mm -hmm. Jews. So, um, um, and you have the Jews in a way different position at the end than you have at the very beginning. And that sort of also explains, because um, remember we're talking about um, where this is in the timeline, which is Ezra 6 to 7, between Ezra 6 and 7, um, the Jews gaining more um, respect and honor in that uh, civilization and this is a story explaining why that happened um, and, and you have that description at the end where it talks about Mordecai and it talks about how he gained respect and and also how the Jews in general gained respect when they were actually originally captives so um, <clears throat> uh, and of course you have uh, uh, this situation with uh, with what happens to Queen Vashti, and it's not told like why that happened, um, or if it was her fault, or anything, because it doesn't really matter. It's just like, okay, this happened, so that gave an opportunity for God to do this. Mm -hmm. um, and so I feel like it's God is working in this situation. I don't think he's in approval of the situation. I think he is... Um, using the situation to show his uh, to show his glory which is the whole point of everything mm -hmm. um, and uh, and uh, just like um, God's dealings with everybody with the Pharaohs of Egypt it's to show God's power over those kings as well as everybody else um, and so it's another time where God, although it doesn't say, but it's obvious um, that God is using this situation to elevate himself, to glorify mm -hmm. himself and to elevate the Jews uh, for, a for a specific purpose. Um, and, um, and so it's, it sort of like reminds me of when you, when you have, the reason it does, I think, the reason that the author doesn't say, okay, well, God's doing this. Whereas in other books, we do have set, them saying, but God, you know, God did this. Um, is that this author is sort of like, if you have to explain a joke, it's not funny anymore. Mm -hmm. Well, if you have to insert that, well, God did this, it's like, well, duh. Mm -hmm. Of course, because that's why he wrote it this way, and that's how... That's how you know that, and if if it has to be explained to you, then then you didn't get the story. Mm -hmm. um, <clears throat> so anyway, those are my those are my thoughts on on this. It's just um, this lavish banquet, and then um, it sort of ends up falling apart mm -hmm. because at the end of it, um, the king is like, "Oh, well, this you know can't <laughs> this can't stand," and. Also, uh, the king relies heavily on his advisors for mm -hmm. just about everything. Like mm -hmm. it's like, okay, what should we do about this? And so his advisors say, well, this. And then, you know, somebody else, you know, something else happens. Something happened in the middle of the book. You know, uh, Haman. Uh, uh, the, he asks Haman, "What should I, you know, 
how should I honor this person? Mm-hmm. Um, so it seems like he takes a lot of advice from other people, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, what kings do. Um, but it seems like there's an emphasis on that mm-hmm. um, more so in this book than, than other books that I, that I read about other kings um, that he relies on. Uh, I mean, then Mordecai comes into, um, comes into play and he takes the advice of Mordecai. Well, okay, this decree has been made. What should I do? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and he even asks Esther, okay, well, I've done this, but what else do you want me to do? Mm-hmm. And so it just seems like, um, uh, again, emphasizes how that this isn't about King Ahasuerus. Mm-hmm. This is about God, right? Mm-hmm. Because He doesn't even really He makes decisions, but only based on what someone else told Him to do. Devices He's been given. <clears throat> Elizabeth, what have you got for chapter one? Um, I just liked how you brought out that He relies on His advisors so much. Because I actually watched a um, stage adaptation of Ezra, or not Ezra, Esther, and they made him just this big old dummy who mm-hmm. was just partying all the time and asking all his friends. And I think just the the foolishness of Ahasuerus and how he can't hardly make decisions by himself and he's drunk all the time really does emphasize that, yeah, it's God working in this story and not these commoners or idiot kings or mm-hmm. sneaky advisors or whatever. Mm-hmm. So even though we've established that it's not really important why these things happened, mm-hmm. I think it's really interesting just kind of how it all goes down. Mm-hmm. So... Whether or not Vashti was just being straight up rebellious and disobedient or had a legitimate a legitimate reason, I don't think Ahasuerus was like asking a good thing in the first place. Right. Exactly. Like he's showing off his wealth and I was like, uh, hmm, alright, I've showed all my wealth, I've given him all my line. Let's just let him ogle my wife. Like that <laughs> sounds like a good idea. Mm-hmm. What? Yeah. Um <laughs> And then jumping the gun a little bit, which makes the end of chapter one a little more funny. Um, In the beginning of chapter two, it says his anger abated. And I think I've heard it rendered that like, basically he sobered up, um, (laughs) was how that's been um, interpreted in some places, which makes it really funny where he's like, oh, you know what? My wife wouldn't come, you know, dance in front of me and my friends i'm gonna i'm gonna get rid of her i'm gonna divorce her um while he's you know blackout drunk then he comes to his senses the next day and he's like hmm yeah i guess i gotta kick her out now because i said i was gonna do that and made a decree <laughs> so i think um even though i don't think any of us drink at all um just kind of don't make important decisions while no, you're, you're drunk. drunk. <laughs> you wake up the next day and you have to send your wife away. Um, <clears throat> yeah. And then, I guess, the other thing that stood out to me, again, was the advisors and how if the king is that incompetent, they're going to be doing this for their own gain. So maybe she gets deposed and someone wants to make her, you know, their fourth wife or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, And like we said, it doesn't really matter. But it's just, it is really funny with the alcohol and the incompetence of the king and all that. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. How do you, and this is obviously very, very, very sidebar. Um, 
I do think it's interesting. So when the when their advice is, look, if you if you do not do something, then this example will permeate. You know, now putting aside, you know, what we you know the we don't know like maybe she is being rebellious, maybe she's not. You know, either way. But thinking about that that logic. Um, but I do think I, I, in other passages come to mind when I see that logic of there is something to considering our example mm-hmm. of how it's going to affect <coughs> people looking at us and mm-hmm. you know and I you know as a quote preacher's wife you, you get told you know things mm-hmm. like you know be careful this, that, and the other, and and there's a degree to which I I I roll a little bit at that because I don't think I would live differently as a Christian that was not a preacher's wife than I would, you know, mm-hmm. as quote a preacher's wife. But I do I do think there bears out wisdom in in the instruction where they're saying, you know what, if you let what will be perceived as rebellious behavior and again I think about um, you know raising kids and you know just different things like that of if if someone is allowed to like just rebel and that's what it looks like anyway I don't know that you know whether or not she actually was then that does that that permeates through other people watching and going, yeah, yeah, I don't, you know, if I'm justified in not obeying or whatever. Now, I know that's going to be very controversial, and I don't mean that to say, I don't mean that as any commentary on whether or not Vashti was right or wrong, because mm-hmm. I don't know, and whether or not the king was right or wrong. I mean, to, to me, mm-hmm. that doesn't seem godly you know or you know whatever mm-hmm. i think it is just a showing out and he's you know he's happy and he's drunk and doesn't know what he's doing but i do think of other women in very ungodly situations who at least from what i can tell probably handle that better you know what mm-hmm. i'm saying like uh, i think about oh um Nabal's wife abigail mm-hmm. and how beautifully she performed mm-hmm. with a fool for her husband you know right um, so anyway, I, you know, and I, I don't mean to, again, comment one way or the other on Vashi because I don't know, but I do think there is something interesting in that um, advice that was given of, hey, look, if you allow this, other women are going to, like, start being rebellious in their husbands, and it's going to cause a problem in the kingdom, and I do think there's a legitimacy to that, and I don't want to just swipe over that, um, but... That's with a whole lot of asterisks and caveats mm-hmm. that I'm not saying she necessarily should have come and did what he said either. So, anyway. Okay, alright. Uh, chapter 2. Uh, let's see. Elizabeth, do you mind reading through that chapter? After these things, when the anger of King Hazarus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. And the king's young men who attended him said, Let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king, and let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, 
under custody of uh, Higai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them, and let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king, and he did so. Now there was a Jew in Susa, the citadel, whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who had been carried away from Jerusalem among the captives, carried away with Jeconiah, king of Judah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, had carried away. He was bringing up Hadassah, that is, Esther, the daughter of his uncle, for she, she had neither father nor mother. The young woman had a beautiful figure and was lovely to look at, and when her father and her mother died, Mordecai took her as his own daughter. So when the king's order and his edict were proclaimed, and when many young women were gathered in Susa the citadel in custody of Higai, uh, Esther was also taken into the king's palace and put in custody of Higai, who had charge of the women. And the young woman pleased him and won his favor, and he quickly provided her with her cosmetics and her portion of food, and with seven chosen young women from the king's palace, and advanced her and her young women to the best place in the harem. Esther had not made known her people or kindred, for Mordecai had commanded her not to make it known. And every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her. Now when the turn came for each young woman to go into King Hazarus, after being twelve months under regulations for women, since this was the regular period of their beautifying, six months of oil of myrrh and six months with spices and ointments for women, when the young woman went into the king in this way, she was given whatever she desired to take with her from the harem to the king's palace. In the evening she would go in, and in the morning she would return to the second harem in custody of... Uh, Shash, 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 Shashgaz, the king's eunuch, who was in charge of the concubines. She would not go into the king again, unless the king delighted in her and she was summoned by name. When the turn came for Esther, the daughter of Abihail, the uncle of Mordecai, who had taken her as his own daughter, to go into the king, she asked her nothing except what Higai, the king's eunuch, who had charge of the women, advised. Now Esther was winning favor in the eyes of all who saw her. And when Esther was taken to King Ahasuerus into his royal palace in the tenth month, which is the month of Tibet, in the seventh year of his reign, the king loved Esther more than all the women. She won grace and favor in his sight more than all the virgins, so that he set the royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Then the king gave a great feast for all his officials and servants. It was Esther's feast. He also granted a remission of taxes to the provinces and gave gifts with royal generosity. Now when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as she was brought up with him, just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther. And Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows. And it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. Okay, so several things in this chapter. Um, you know, first, I you know, cannot help but chuckle again, and that's, you know, the same 
thing I did, you know, reading earlier is, oh, okay, now, now that we're sober, um, <laughs> oh yeah, that's the thing I did, so we got to wrap that up and move forward or whatever. So um, then him appointing um, overseers to go and find all the beautiful young women. And this, so here's my mixed emotion bag in this chapter is, you know, there's so much of, you know, talk of bringing them into the harem. And I know it's the, it is, you know, the the culture and the time and all that, but still there's just this, oh, okay. I mean, <laughs> just the thought of like, oh, my word, I, I can't even imagine. It's so, part of me just doesn't want to wrap my brain around like, what in the world? This is crazy. Mm -hmm. But Anyway, so Esther, you know, again, as Sherry was saying, you cannot help but see God's word. I mean, it, to me, it comes, it brings back to mind Joseph, you know, and him always finding favor, you know, in um, wherever he was and whatever, you know, pit he was found in. He would always find favor in the people, um, in, in the enemy's territory, so to speak. And that's what is taking place, looks like it's taking place in Esther's case where um, no matter where she is on the rung it's she's kind of getting moved along passed along because she's um, finding favor with those mm -hmm. around her um, beautiful picture of I and this this is where it, it turns to me of um, you know from the cringeworthy to this is so beautiful is Esther's personality shining through of whatever is advised. You know, she is not going in there snapping her fingers and saying, this is the stuff that I want and I better get mine. And, you know, just, mm -hmm. you know, and, and we would be fools to think those kind of women didn't exist during this time. Of course they did. Um, but, and then on an incredibly superficial note, I do kind of envy the six months. Of, <laughs> like, oh, that comes nice, but mm, I don't know. Yeah. But still, got the cringe of the, the hair up to us. Yeah. <laughs> right. So I don't know. Um, but anyway, she. I just love seeing that um, in her, and that is a lesson to me because now in all our culture, mm -hmm. it is very difficult you know, myself included, to find a woman with this kind of spirit mm -hmm. of, hey, like, whatever is here, that's what I'll work with, or whatever you suggest, you know, as mm -hmm. opposed to the opposite kind mm -hmm. of attitude. Mm -hmm. um, so anyway, he gives the banquet, there's another, yeah, um, Esther's banquet mm -hmm. for all his princes and servants, and chooses her um, as his next queen, and um, and then at the end of the chapter, we've got Mordecai finding out about the plot to kill the king and passing that along through Esther, um, which of course comes up later. It's a very important mm -hmm. part of um, of this story. Mm -hmm. So, what what did oh I was going to go to you Elizabeth? What thoughts do you have from that chapter? Yeah, so I really like the comment you made about her kind of personality. And not necessarily being passive, but accepting advice and not being prideful or assertive in a negative way or anything like that. And I think as well as that reflects on her character, it also reflects on the character of Mordecai, which we get a little bit more towards the end. Because he's raising her and she um, obviously respects his advice and what he's telling her to do. Um, and we can see that he's 
raised her well, raised her to be, um, you know, a kind and humble person. But then we see him exhibiting the exact same traits where he's concerned for the king's welfare, which kind of reminds me a little bit of when we were in Jeremiah, where he's like, just go, be concerned about the welfare of your city. Um, and Mordecai is doing that. He's making sure the king is good. Um, and how even though it was recorded in the book that he did this thing, he's not going and seeking out glory for himself. So we'll see, mm-hmm. he gets his reward later on, but that was more because Haman was seeking his own glory. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think this kind of shows a good parallel between Esther and her character and the man who raised her and how he holds those same principles to himself. Right. Mm-hmm. Sherry? Um, just uh, on that note, just, um, you know, wow. I, I have never thought of this before, but Mordecai's got every right to not be a fan of the king. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, this isn't a thing that Esther volunteered for. This is, I mean, I don't think, this isn't a beauty pageant. You know where everybody applies and then everybody tries to this is like going out and just gathering up the most beautiful women and saying okay now you're in the king's harem mm-hmm. and I mean we know that so uh, Esther doesn't directly talk with Mordecai mm-hmm. until the end so why is that well it's because she's not allowed to it isn't because she doesn't want to mm-hmm. uh, he's not allowed in to talk to her and she's not allowed out so she's basically a prisoner like you said like Joseph mm-hmm. um, and yet, he's still concerned about the welfare of the king. Mm-hmm. Uh, because he could have very easily said, well, he gets what he deserves. Mm-hmm. These two guys try to kill him. Oh, well. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. You know, sorry. Um, so so it, it, does, um, it does impress me that um, and she seems to have the same sort of character that he does. Like, she's concerned about the welfare of the king. Um, truly concerned about the welfare of the king, not just acting like she is. Like, everybody acted like they were. Mm-hmm. And because, you know, they really valued their head. Right. And, um, uh, but she truly is, because she didn't have to tell him. And Mordecai didn't have to tell him. Um, so, um, anyway, that does um, impress me that uh, she, she obviously got that character from him. Like he, he raised her since she was a child, and and so she and it says that she did, she didn't do anything without Mordecai, without asking Mordecai. Okay, we'll show you about this. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, because it says that you know every day Mordecai walked in front of the court of the harem to learn how Esther was and what was happening to her, so he couldn't go in to find out, but he was really concerned about what was going on. Mm-hmm. Um, um, <clears throat> uh, the the fact that she took the advice of the of the uh, who was it? it was a Haggai I think that was the in charge of the harem of that harem there was a harem that hadn't slept with the king yet and there was another harem that had already and he could do whatever he wanted with them or not whatever. Um, and so, um, but he was in charge of, so the fact that she sort of just took his advice, um, 
uh, is impressive too because he's in charge of keeping her in prison mm -hmm. <laughs> and yet she still you know finds favor in his eyes and also she asks for his advice as to you know what should I do and um, uh, she gets to be sort of the favorite because uh, because of her um, because of her character and because she tended to um, uh, take the advice of people that she felt like she could trust so um, I mean <clears throat> so yeah I mean, she's she's making the best out of a bad situation. Mm -hmm. is, is what she's doing. She's she's just uh, like you said, like Joseph did. He was like, "Well, I'm here, so you know, just make lemonade." Mm -hmm. And um, I think that's probably what she what she does, and that's kind of what I get from this chapter. Is just her and Mordecai's character is sort of shining through everything. <clears throat> All right, well, let's move on to three. And, uh, read through that, Sherry. Do you mind reading mm -hmm. for us? After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the gate, king's gate said to Mordecai, why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman, in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand. For he had told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of, of King Ahasuerus, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day. And they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to the king, to King Ahasuerus, this, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people. They do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries." So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, The money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict according to all that Haman commanded was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to the officials of all the peoples to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus, and sealed with the king's signet ring. <clears throat> Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces, with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, 
And the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Okay, and so uh, I know you were mentioning the turning point um, later where Haman's fortunes kind of turn. Mm -hmm. um, and this seems like to me another sort turning of, point. yeah, turning point mm -hmm. for the Jews. Um, but let me rewind just a minute to, um, <clears throat> I forgot to bring this out and um, admittedly I kind of sat on my walls and was like, oh, sure, he's going to find that out. Mm -hmm. um, and just forgot about it. But more, when it goes through uh, Mordecai's background mm -hmm. in chapter 2, and it is going through uh, oh, Son of Kish, mm -hmm. where, what verse am I? Uh, that would be... Oh, okay, up here, five. Okay, okay yeah. yeah. Who, five. A Jew whose name was Mordecai, the son of Jer, the son of Shimei, the son of Kish, a Benjamite. Mm -hmm. So is that in the family of Saul? Is that correct? Yeah. Okay. Now, when we go, now in chapter yes. three. Yeah, Saul was the son of Kish. Right. The Agagite, um, which is Haman, right? Mm -hmm. um, that. Isn't that descendants of the Amalekites who Saul got in trouble for not killing him? Correct. Right? Okay. Correct. All right. This is just, a, I mean, I don't know what any of that means, except that it is interesting to me. Oh, okay. There's little pops of Saul coming through here. So, anyway, now I'm not bright enough to connect those dots yet, but I just wanted to ask that to make sure I was... I was connecting, I was not missing that up as far as those stories because I, that just stood out to me in this reading of chapter three of, oh wait, there's another reference to Saul. So, mm -hmm. okay. All right. Take it away, Sherry. <laughs> well, now that you've opened that door. Because she's looking very knowingly for those who cannot see So, her. Like, yeah. Oh, so she's finally come around. Mordecai <laughs> is a descendant of Saul. Yeah. And Haman is a descendant of Agag. Now, it doesn't say Haman the Amalekite, mm -hmm. right. which Agag was an Amalekite. It says the Agagite, which means he was a descendant of Agag, not just an Amalekite. Right. And um, so I think this is sort of a, a, a hint at, okay, Saul was supposed to destroy Ag Agag. Mm -hmm. He did not. And now look what's happened. Yeah. And uh, I think it also speaks to Haman's um, attitude towards the Jews. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not it, 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 it's, he, he, he has a he has a visceral hatred of Mordecai because he doesn't bow down. Although he doesn't know that Mordecai didn't bow down. Mm -hmm. He was informed of it by someone else. Right. Um, and so uh, Mordecai doesn't bow down to him. Why not? Well, he's a Jew. He says, because I'm a Jew. And Jews don't bow down to anybody. anybody right. Um, but it also might be that Mordecai knew that he was an Agagite, and I'm not bowing down to an Agagite because mm -hmm. he's an Amalekite, which means he's not a person I'm going to show honor to. Um, so there's all that wrapped up into this. Mm -hmm. And... and um, uh, 
I, I do think it's a I do think it's a throwback to um, the situation with Saul and the Amalekites, where Saul didn't extinguish all of the Amalekites, and so this is what happens, mm -hmm. and this is why God said destroy all of them. Mm -hmm. um, and that seems like a cruel thing for God to do, but here you go. Mm -hmm. um, and so now Haman is not just angry with Mordecai, he's angry at all the Jews. Yeah. And um, uh, he gets looking into it, and, and, and in fact he tells the king, he doesn't say to the king, he won't bow down, down to me, and that's why I want to destroy the Jews. Mm -hmm. He's like, no, these are people that are rebellious, and their laws are different than others, and... Uh, I, I think basically he's saying, without saying it, he's saying they don't bow down to anybody else. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, uh, but he doesn't say it that way. He just says their laws are different and they're just different people and they're kind of troublemakers and it's just not a good idea to have these people still mm -hmm. live. And another situation where uh, the king is like, sounds good to me. <laughs> yeah. He takes advice from his, you know, he picked Haman as his advisor. And then Haman tells him this, and he's like, sure, whatever, do it. Mm -hmm. Here's my signet ring, you know, you go ahead and whatever you want to do is fine. Right. Um, so, uh, I, mean, I, I mean, Haman couches it, which all the advisors are probably doing, couches it in um, terms of, why this is bad for the kingdom, not why this is bad for me, which is basically what he's talking about. Um, so, um, so um, it's just interesting to me that um, uh, that that there's all this um, history wrapped up in in the fact that he calls him an Agagite guy and the fact that you know. Mordecai, uh, Mordecai's ancestry is mentioned too as being a part of the family of Saul. Um, and so um, there's a long-standing um, uh, issue between the Amalekites and mm -hmm. the descendants of Saul. Yeah. And so this is just one of them again. Uh, but um, um, it's interesting to me too that he... so. Hey, the king, who seems to be pretty impulsive, mm -hmm. is the opposite of Haman, who takes a long... I mean, they cast lots for a while to figure out, like... Not to figure out whether they were going to destroy the Jews, but when. Mm -hmm. And um, they take months to figure out, month after month, until the 12th month, um, to decide, okay, when are we going to do this? When are we going to... Um, when are we? When, are, when am I going to go to the king with this? You know, am I going to go, go to him right now about this? That you know, so cast lots to see, and and because um, I think there's an emphasis on that because that's what the feast is named after is Purim. Right. Um, <clears throat> so um, it also kind of um, I think it kind of uh, hints at sort of bringing God into this because they cast lots, and so it's like whatever. It's a coincidence. I mean, other people would think of it as a coincidence. It's actually God doing that. Mm -hmm. right. um, 
and just at the end where it says uh, the city was in an uproar and the king and Haman sat down to drink but the city was in an uproar so they were basically just like mm, whatever and <laughs> the whole rest of the city was like what are we going to do about this right. so yeah um, just the casual way in which they sort of handled that just disturbing mm -hmm. yeah <clears throat> all right elizabeth we have a few minutes but go ahead and share what you've got for that chapter yeah so um what really kind of sticks out to me here and what's gonna play out through the rest of the book is just Haman's pride and i'm not sure if he had any just like preconceived anti-semitism mm -hmm. um how much he knew about the jews and their customs before hearing of this incident with Mordecai, but it's just, I don't know, it seems like an overreaction where it says, like, it wasn't enough for him just to, you know, take out Mordecai. He wants revenge on literally the entire nation, yeah. which seems like a little bit of overreaction. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then what was the other thing I thought of? Shoot. I had another thought. It might come to me, it might not. But I did I did really enjoy the just that last line of, you know, they're minding their own business and if the city could be burning down, they would never know because I don't know, he's just done this. And then yeah, Hazard's just being like, Yeah, you do whatever seems good. That that sounds good to me. So one of the things that, that reminds me of Ahasuerus is, you know, taking all the advice, but not thinking through, it doesn't seem, for himself. You know, I, you, Dave Ramsey talks all the time about, you know, understand what you're investing in. And, you know, when he is looking at these people and saying, what should I do? I don't ever see in this the follow-up of, like, an additional question or bring me the law or you know not, never a prying into let me understand this to the degree that it makes sense to me mm -hmm. but just a total leaning like mm -hmm. you you know been bringing out sherry on well i've surrounded myself by smart people so that's like that's all the thought that goes into it there's mm -hmm. not a there there never seems to be a kickstart of his own brain to okay but what about what about what happens when we annihilate all the jews what then you know i mean there's no like further conversation so that is interesting to me um because like you said there's so many other kings that we see good and bad examples but that do think it through for themselves and weigh it mm -hmm. as opposed to you know, I mean, you you think about when the divided kingdom, or I mean, not, not when, sorry, when David was fleeing for his life, and then the two counselors mm -hmm. came, and it, you know, it's been weighed out. Okay, whose is the better advice? I'm going to go with this one because mm -hmm. that seems, you know, what I mean. Mm -hmm. Like there's that, you know, locking Thought up your own brain. Yeah, yeah. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, he doesn't. Mm -hmm. Anyway, it's so, interesting too that he says it says they sat down to drink. It doesn't say they sat down to eat and drink. <laughs> Yeah. So I they mean, weren't setting down for a meal. Right. No. 
Like so good. here again is we made a decision. <laughs> the lush. Right. <laughs> um, and the last thing you're talking about um, the pride of Haman and and the overreaction and when does that not happen? I mean, that's what you know. When you were saying that, I just thought there we have example after example after example of when pride when our pride mm-hmm. enters it, if it is not mm-hmm. in the cross of Christ. Or if it is not in, you know, the faithfulness to God or, you know, what he's done for us, every single time it's an overreaction. Mm-hmm. It is it is a course correction that's too much, you know, like when you're driving and then, then something, you know, mm-hmm. pops in front of you, always overcorrect in one direction or the other. Mm-hmm. And and anyway, it just to me screams the importance of mm-hmm. all of our pride has to be removed mm-hmm. and the only thing that we can be proud in is that God has done everything for us and we are unworthy unprofitable servants so anyway I just appreciate you bringing that out because that is a continual um, mantra that's throughout scripture we got to pay attention to that okay well I'm going to pause us there and we will pick up in chapter 4 next time